Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. And today we've got a very special topic. We're talking about freedom. A very important word in the spirituality of South Asia, and apparently a very important word here in America, too. Everyone's almost always talking about freedom, um, though very seldom do we know what we mean by that word. So what exactly is implied by freedom? And how is it that freedom is seen as the highest aspiration of spiritual life? So we're going to inquire into the role of freedom with regards to South Asian spirituality. And the word we often give it is moksha. Moksha meaning liberation. Now the question is, of course, liberation from what? What do we need to be freed from? Who is the uh, overlord? Who is the tyrant, you know? It's the government coming for our guns, quote unquote. <laughs> so there's a lot of talk here, right, in the West about freedom, given that freedom is at the very center of the Western political approach. Um, and it's seen as the highest um, aspirations for democracies, for domestic relationships, for individual senses of, of meaning and, 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 and joy. So liberty, perhaps, is the word that we often use here in the West. Welcome, Kali Shiva. So good to have you, brother. So what does that mean? What do we mean by moksha? Now, particularly because two weeks ago, we had a lecture about the purusharthas, the four accomplishments of the soul. We looked at the law of Manu to figure out an ancient prescription for how one ought to live one's life. And in that lecture, we talked about moksha as the penultimate consummation of a life as an incarnated being. So the goal of life, the purpose of the life that we live is moksha, is liberation, and that is the maximum amount of freedom possible. You know, so that's what we're all headed towards. Now, in the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad, it opens with a very beautiful idea. The very start of the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad, which is one of the Gnostic texts of ancient India, there's this teaching. What the wife loves in her husband is the Atman or the self, uh, meaning liberation. What the husband loves in the wife is the Atman or the self, meaning liberation. And what the wealthy love in their wealth is the Atman or is liberation. Now, the idea there is what we truly want out of the things we want is not those things, but the liberation we think we will get out of having them. So it's not that we want a car or a Ferrari. It's not really that we want a certain partner. It's not really that we want uh, a raise at our job or anything. Those things are merely means to an end. And those ends, of course, vary. Like we might say security. More money means I'll be safer. I'll be able to handle my debts and that will give me a measure of peace and calm. Uh, climbing up the corporate ladder or achieving things in my social public life will give me a sense of validation and that will come with a sense of belonging that I crave. You know, and all of these things are means to an end. The the end being penultimate freedom, moksha. So that's what the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad is claiming right at the beginning, that what you truly want out of life is liberation, is freedom. So necessarily then, South Asian uh, spirituality, it's almost a trope. We're obsessed with this idea of freedom, of moksha, of total emancipation. 
And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So I'll do hopefully three things for you by Shiva's Mercy. The first is we'll kind of discuss um, why freedom is so important. Next, we'll look at some conceptions of freedom and see if we can really clarify what we mean by that word freedom. Um, and it might be counterintuitive once we start looking at it. And then finally, we're going to look at some arguments from the Advaita Vedanta tradition to hopefully convey to you now, here and now, in the comfort of your own space, the uh, fullness of liberation. So you must remember that none of this should be believed on the level of dogma. One must never trust a talking head or a drunken monkey on a Zoom screen. Do not believe a word I say. Ultimately, the test of truth, the truth of any of these scriptural ideas is in the um, application in one's own life. So one must look deeply into the facts of here and now, one must test these ideas against one's own encounters with life, and therein one discovers the truth of them. So it isn't true unless it is true for you. That's our golden rule. So at the end of today's lecture, uh, we'll present maybe two or three, maybe four arguments if we're good on time to not just convey the intellectual understanding of this stuff, but hopefully to convey an actual experience of the liberation that we're going to be talking about. So it's nice to overpromise sometimes. <laughs> we tend to promise big here in our Sangha, and we hope that many of us will walk away today with a deeper sense of freedom with a feeling of um, lightness, a sense of invulnerability and fearlessness. The mark of spiritual maturity, as we stress time and time again, is absolute fearlessness, particularly fearlessness with regards to death. Next, it's marked by a tremendous sense of relaxation, spaciousness, and creativity. Once you feel the fearlessness guaranteed by these philosophies, from that arises a very sweet and easeful state of being, which lends itself to creativity, and not just that, which lends itself to compassion. The only time we hurt one another is when we're feeling fearful and contracted. You know... <laughs> So when no one no longer feels fearful or contracted, ethics become uh, effortless. It becomes a kind of byproduct of this liberation, this tremendous sense of freedom. Okay, so let's begin. Let's start talking about freedom as we commonly understand it. Now, most of us, as the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad claims, most of us are looking for freedom in one way or another. In some sense, freedom is the watchword for all human desire. So take, for instance, um, your common trope here in the West of people coming to yoga because of physical ailment. You know, so it's funny, but a lot of people discover yoga here in America because they, I don't know, volunteered in the army and had to carry, or maybe not volunteered, so drug, signed up with the army and had to carry a backpack all up and down the border. And uh, that caused some compression in the lower back and tremendous pain in the spine. So they saw a chiropractor, they went and saw some doctors, and invariably those healthcare professionals siphoned them off to a yoga teacher. <laughs> you know, so some people perhaps suffering from irritable bowel syndrome or insomnia or uh, joint pain or, or various ailments in the body sooner or later come to hear about yoga as a kind of physical therapy for those ailments. So people here often approach yoga with the intention of practicing asana. Asana being, of course, the poses of the Hatha Yoga tradition. Now, those poses are marketed to them as like a therapy, as some kind of um, physio or ability to uh, 
feel better in the body. And as Claire said, I was initially trying to fix my posture. Yes, actors come to yoga. You know, they learn a little bit of Alexander technique and they're like, no, 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 go down to the uh, yoga studio. Um, Emily her, herself is an actor. So there's Emily. You know, so actors come to yoga because there's a lot of overlap between the improv um, acting world and the breathing techniques of yoga. So in one way or another, people come to yoga um, most often because of something physical. Now, even in this case, what people are looking for, perhaps, is a kind of liberation, a freedom from that ache in the lower back. It's an emancipation from the body's tyranny, you know. So whatever condition the body might be expressing at that moment, the goal or the hope of practicing yoga is emancipation from that. So it seems like we don't want to have this pain in the lower back. For some reason, it's come about. Maybe we were a librarian and we pushed one too many chairs. Not to be flippant, that's a real thing. A lot of librarians apparently have uh, tremendous lower back problems in later life because they're pushing chairs. A lot of guitar players too develop a, a lot of pain from standing on stage with the guitar. So inevitably, there's wear and tear and yoga is the uh, uh, catch-all therapy for that. So you see, even in this case, even in the most... Uh, secular form of yoga, there is still a kind of emancipation that we're seeking, an emancipation from the tyranny of the body, a freedom from physical pain. Now, of course, once such a person comes to yoga, they realize, oh, what I conflated um, as yoga was asana. It's about one small part of a much larger world. Um, and and that asana is my gateway drug into the philosophies of yoga. Suddenly you learn that the yoga sutra is but one flavor in the Baskin Robbins shop of Indian spirituality. Suddenly you realize, oh, there's Sankhya and there's yoga, but then there's also Advaita Vedanta and Vishishta Advaita. And, oh my God, there's also all these other traditions like uh, Nyaya and, and Vaisheshika. You get really excited by the, uh, yes, you see, there's Lakshmi. <laughs> you get so excited about all the other forms of spirituality. Here's Hanuman. <laughs> yeah, and you start to realize what a, what a wide and colorful world. Now, a lot of people come to this philosophy not because of physical ailments, but because of mental ailments. So they come to fix their body and they realize their mind is fucked, but thankfully, yoga can help with that too. So they learn the Samavriti Pranayam and they feel, oh, after I do this breathing technique, there's a sense of spaciousness I feel around what was previously so oppressive to me. So before the yoga class, I was freaking about, out about something, you know, maybe taxes or a relationship. I was dealing with a heavy, intrusive thought and try as I might, I just couldn't shake that feeling of dread or heaviness or fear or anxiety. Then I came to the yoga class, maybe because my physiotherapist told me to. I tried some breathing technique, you know, um, some brown man chanted some very strange, satanic-sounding invocations, and before I knew it, I felt better. You know, I felt a kind of spaciousness, a relaxation. Um, and then we sense, we sense deep down inside, the potential of this tradition to free us from our mental heaviness. So many people come to yoga, come to spiritual practice, come to vipassana or Buddhist meditation out of a desire to free themselves from the tyranny of the mind. 
So maybe you've come to free yourself from the tyranny of the body, or maybe you've come to free yourself from the tyranny of the mind. In any case, what you are looking for is an emancipation, is a sense of liberation. The fact of the matter is, you don't want the lower back to hurt, but it does. You don't want the mind to conjure up these thoughts, these troublesome dreams of the future, these harrowing reflections of the past, yet we feel like we cannot help but think those things. You might call them intrusive thoughts or obsessions or traumas or complexes. They seem to come up when we least want them to, you know, and, and they really interrupt our ability to live a meaningful life. So here we are, tyrannized by the mind, unable to choose what thoughts we think. Here we are, tyrannized by the body, unable to choose what sensations we want to feel. And as such, we come to yoga. So already we're looking for a kind of emancipation, looking for a kind of liberation, even in these two examples. Now, a more mature spirituality is as follows. You've started to experience not just suffering, but you've started to experience the very sweet, beautiful nightmare that results from a life of comfort. You know, so the most mature form of spirituality is the finishing with sense gratification, intellectual titillation, and any other form of external level comfort. And this is, you know, um, a very subtle realization. It was the Buddha's realization about 2,600 years ago. The realization that suffering is all pervasive. As the Buddha himself so beautifully expressed, Anityam Manityam Sarva Manityam. Impermanent, impermanent, all things are impermanent. Not just that, Shanikam Shanikam Sarvam Shanikam. You know, uh, momentary, momentary, all things are momentary. And therefore, shunyam, shunyam, sarvam shunyam, void, void, all things are void. And finally, the Buddha, in one tremendous insight, expressed, dukkam, dukkam, sarvam dukkam. Therefore, suffering is all pervasive. All things will cause suffering sooner or later, whether you know it or not. So the ultimate kind of party pooper claim of the Buddha, um, if you'd like to see it that way, is um, no matter what you do in this life, no matter where you go, suffering will find you. Even if you solve your lower back problem through yoga, um, your ex-partner is going to, I don't know, kidnap your dog or something. <laughs> You're going to get a call from the IRS about backup withholdings. You're going to realize that you don't love your partner anymore. You're going to wake up one night, you know, in the middle of the night, you're like, oh my God, I'm lying next to a stranger. You know, um, these things are going to happen. As we go through life, the things that we enjoyed yesterday either get taken away from us forcefully. You know, losing loved ones is a fact of life that we try not to look at. Um, or... Even if they aren't taken away forcefully through time and through um, tragedy, we come to lose our interest in them. You see the dilemma? You uh, suffer because you lose the things that you want. Uh, and even if you don't lose them, you stop wanting them. <laughs> so the worst thing that can happen to you in this life, according to the Buddha, is getting what you want. At least when you haven't got what you want, you can strive for it, you know? Life has some kind of purpose and meaning for you. You can struggle and try to make the money you think you need to have to be happy. You can try to find the ideal partner. There's some sense of movement there. But once you get those things, a beautiful nightmare begins to ensue. And that's the nightmare of realizing that even a perfect life, by your standards, by society's standards, doesn't quite scratch the itch. You know, this was the deep existential discomfort that the Buddha was referring to when he said dukkha, you know. 
And uh, the, the Dukkha of the Buddhist is a very interesting word because Dukkha perhaps does not translate as suffering as much as it translates as discomfort. Or, uh, you know, to look at the actual etymo etymology of that word Dukkha, Du meaning bad or not ideal, and Ka meaning space. Now, originally, that word, according to some scholars like Harish Surab, um, that word was in, used most commonly in reference to a chariot, the wheels of a chariot. So, dukkha is to indicate that the spoke is not attached well to the wheel. <laughs> and if the wheel does not fit the spoke, you're in for a bumpy ride, you see. So the Buddha is not really talking about pain. He's not really talking about like political oppression or torture or, or the obvious forms of suffering. The Buddha is talking about something much subtler, much deeper and far more terrifying. You know, the dark suffering of realizing nothing you can experience with the senses will ever fulfill you. And this is perhaps something you might only learn having acquired everything. You know, so for some of us, we need to do the trip. We need to play the game. We, we need to uh, acquire great wealth only to realize it doesn't scratch the itch. You know? We need to acquire great power and great fame. For others amongst us, we're quite lucky. We already did that in a previous incarnation. So young, at, at, at the prime of our youth in this life, we're kind of finished with those things. Others amongst us might have quit halfway. You started collecting money and then you realize what a trap it was. And some amongst us, um, perhaps just through faith through listening to other people have come to that conclusion. You take it on faith that people who have money aren't necessarily happy or magnified by that money. You start to realize that money is incidental to happiness. Uh, power, all those things seem to have very little to do with happiness. So in one way or another, you intuit uh, that these things in the world won't satisfy you. You have, in some sense or another, the realization of the Buddha. And the Buddha, of course, was not the first to voice this. Uh, way before the Buddha, around the first or second millennium BCE, Nachiketa voiced this in the Kata Upanishad, you know, as we've discussed before, um, when Yamaraj, the king of death, offered Nachiketa the world, uh, immortal sons, the, the uh, celestial dancing girls, right? The Apsaras. He offered Nachiketa all the things that the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, was offered in the desert in Matthew. And Nachiketa says to Yamaraj the following. Beautifully, Nachiketa says, uh, What you offer me is good, Yamaraj, but these things wear out the senses. In other words, I'm going to get tired of them. So uh, they're not good enough. <laughs> okay, so once you sense this, now you begin a genuine spirituality. You know, before this, your spirituality will often be co-opted by biological motives. Your cells drive you to acquire uh, wealth, social status, and sexual reproductive privileges. That's what the, the cells of the body seem to want from us. Now, this is perhaps the tyranny of the dragon that is commonly referred to in alchemy. You know, the age-old master of biology that keeps us chained to the wheel of survival and reproduction. This seemingly futile game in which we are each just pawns, you know. So we play the survival game and we like to pretend that we're not playing that game even when we are. So one good example is university. <laughs> 
you know, we all go to these universities and we act as if we're there for higher learning. We act as if what we want out of our uh, college degree is um, some deepening of life. But in actuality, most of us are just looking for a good job, right? We're doing it because we have to go to university to be accepted into certain echelons of society, which of course give us survival privileges. Uh, perhaps we're there to meet um, sexual partners, you know. Um, and so what we end up finding out sooner or later is that even the so-called higher goals of society, like art and culture and learning, even those have somehow been co-opted by the survival reproduction mechanism that we call the tyranny of biology, you see. So the irony here is that for most of our lives, whether we know it or not, we are pawns in this game of biology that does not seem to take into interest our own well-being. That's the realization. Eventually you realize that no matter how well I play this game of survival or reproduction, I'm not really going to be happy through it. You know, at best, like Genghis Khan, I will be deemed biologically successful. You know, I would have propagated my genes, but to what ends? Uh, in a way, what's in it for me? Why am I playing this game for my species, you know? And not just that, the culture enforces such a game. So what we're told is good and respectable is what is survivable and conducive to reproduction. So sooner or later, we all get bored of this game um, and we all look to be free of this game. So we look to be free of these biological imperatives. And we, we start to ask if there are perhaps other motives in life. And, you know, usually this happens in between phone calls. Uh, in the quiet of the movie cinema, right after the movie or before the movie comes on. Uh, it happens during the quiet lull of the party. Just moments when we notice ourselves in our game. You know, as here we are in the party and we're putting on this front. We want people to like us and we want to look cool and all that. And suddenly, every now and then we notice what we're doing. We're like, oh, you know, here I am playing this game of survival and reproduction. Is there, is there more to all of this than this? You know, what else is there? What, why else am I here? So that's the moment when a calling uh, awakens in you. Before that, spirituality, even the meditation that we do, even the asana that we do, all of that will be co-opted by the dragon, by the biological imperative. So notice, um, even if we're at the yoga studio making a pretense of doing spirituality, what we're really doing is trying to um, maintain the body so it will live forever. The ultimate survival uh, a game, you know, or we're looking to improve our aura so that we'll uh, attract mates, the ultimate reproduction game, or even worse, we're trying to be gurus so we can get some kind of like sexual and, and, and uh, um, social privileges with our fellow uh, uh, humans, you know, so we're playing some kind of game, we want to be the teacher because being the teacher reproductively, uh, survival-wise, is a really good strategy for your biology, right? Shamans have always kind of been selected for in our culture. Um, and the irony is that the reason we select for shamans or the reason we have such a reverence for the spiritual teacher is because they convey to us some possibility, some possibility of living by other motives, motives other than our biology. So our artists, our poets, our musicians, our spiritual teachers, they are all a doorway into an alternate life, you know, as... Um, Shiva and I were discussing in the park the other day, sometimes all you have to do is show up and offer people an alternative to this game, you know? Um, and, and the danger of all of this, this Hanuman, yes, the great servant, the incarnation of Shiva, uh, beloved of Ram and uh, a lover of Ram, yes, Jay, Jay Hanuman. <laughs> so it's, it's a sense of um, 
a sense of danger here because the beauty that we see in art, in spirituality, is very real. It points to something very real. It, it gives us a sense that the deepest instincts of human nature can be fulfilled. Um, an alternative to the tyranny or game of biology. But in pursuing it, uh, there is the real risk of co-opting it um, to, to biology, you know, to the dragon. So the further along we come in spiritual life, the steeper the fall, the more dangerous it is. The more things the ego has to aggrandize itself, to feel like, uh, you know, to feel like the shit, which is the ultimate survival and reproduction. That's the risk. That's the risk of spirituality. So until we truly know to the very depths of our being that nothing in the world of survival or reproduction can truly satisfy us, we're going to find ourselves playing this game. You know, even if we have moments of awakening, we'll find that sooner or later the biology over, overruns it. You know, there are great spiritual masters who um, have fallen, you know, having been a great teacher to many, have turned into a sort of despot, you know, a sort of um, a degenerate form of what they used to be years ago. Because the, the, the biology does sneak in there. And if it does, it's okay. You know, it's, it's part of the game. It's, it's not like a, a duel between God and Satan. It's more like a easeful flirtationship between Shiva and Shakti. You're not supposed to take any of this seriously because ultimately you realize this is part of the fun, you know? It's part of the game of enlightenment. It's a hide and seek. You find out spiritual truths um, and then it gets covered over by your biology. Whoops, she's playing the coquette, you know? It's all in good fun. All in the name of sport, Leela as we call it in our tradition. Okay, so here's the condition. We know that we want to be free. We're wrestling in a way with God in the tent. Yes, it's not easy though at all. Yes, yes. And it shouldn't be. Love is a prize. It's, it's, it's not to be won easily. As any three-hour Bollywood movie will show you, the protagonist has to go through quite a bit of wrangling before he can win his, uh, his heart's desire. <laughs> you know, we used to make a joke. Every Bollywood movie is just the Ramayana. You know, so once you read the Ramayana, even Slumdog Millionaire, you'll notice, is just the Ramayana. <laughs> yes. And then you start to look at Hollywood movies, and you're like, oh, this is also trying to be the Ramayana, though less skillfully. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Claire says, and, learn, and she goes, yeah, yeah, and you must learn a lot of choreography. And not just that, you must find a way to make sure everyone in Delhi knows your choreography. So when you go out into the streets and you start to dance, they must know to dance the dance too. It's a lot of work in Bollywood movies. Uh, and so you're right, MJ, it is hard work, but all in good fun. Okay, I mean, American Idol is only fun, you know, uh, during that first week when everyone's struggling. That's when you really like to watch American Idol. The movie is only nice when Frodo and Sam are dirty and tired, you know? <laughs> it would suck if Mordor was next door and Sauron learnt the errors of his ways. He was like, oh yeah, this is a pretty douchebag thing to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Work on my dance moves. Yes, yes. So, yeah, actually, all, this is actually a Bollywood dance class. What do you thought? You come here for yoga flossing? No, no, no. This is the preamble. We're going to start screwing on the light bulb and petting the dog in just a moment. <laughs> okay, so it's all in good fun. You know, there's this game going on. But the game is a game of emancipation. What we sense deep down inside is there's a kind of, of um, bondage that is ever-present in our life. And it's, it's on many levels. 
on one level, it's the bondage to sensory gratification. Um, as the Buddha pointed out, shanikam, shanikam, sarva shanikam. Everything is so momentary. Even the best molly, you know, like that one Norwegian molly maker used to, you know, the, the orange Tesla, you know, that really rare bit of molly that cost a lot of money and you really had to know people to get it. Once you get it, you try it. It's awesome, but for only a little while. You know, it comes and it goes. All the pleasure that you experience is a flash in the pan. The tastiest cookie is but a moment of sweetness. And it goes, leaving behind an unbridgeable gulf of despair you know so the molly trip the the rave must end and the next day you're on your couch crying eating lemongrass and 5 htp to recover your serotonin of course that's an extreme example but it's true for any kind of pleasurable experience you can imagine so even the tastiest cake yeah pains yes pains too come and go um and i'm sure you know like you've all enjoyed the beginning of a romance Perhaps one of the most intoxicating times of a human life. Uh, it's, it's the ultimate trap, right? Because there's so much dopamine in the opening of a romance. Yes, Brie. Yes, Brie. Uh, I, I do. <laughs> Name me a substance that I haven't tried. <laughs> uh, Yogi must realize that all the pleasures of the world are not worth having compared to the bliss of uh, Samadhi. You know? One particle of this bliss, this God intoxication, as Yogananda says, is uh, worth all the pleasures of the world. Yes, Claire says, I'll try anything five times. Or as Oscar Wilde says, je peux résister par tous les choses, uh, avec une exception. Les tentations. I can resist all things with one exception. Temptation. <laughs> Red is in the room to, uh, to scold me for my uh, French accent. C'est terrible, désolé. <laughs> je sais, je sais. Nous pouvons pratiquer, oui. Okay. Um, nous pouvons pratiquer. <laughs> okay, so um, it seems like the pleasures that we want are so momentary. Shanikam, shanikam, sarvam, shanikam, that they create a dependency. So the honeymoon period in the first three months of a relationship wears away. So we need to cycle through relationships, you know, to keep it fresh. We got to keep the divorce train coming. We got to keep looking for new partners. Uh, in order to keep the uh, pleasure of drugs fresh, we got to keep the substances coming. And, and there's a kind of bondage to that. It finishes so quickly. It's so transient. It leaves behind a wanting for more. Um, there's a threshold effect. What satisfies us before won't satisfy us today. And many drug users die chasing the dragon of the first high. You know, it's never going to be good, as good as the first time. So there's this diminishing marginal returns. And not just that, the pursuit of pleasure causes in the body the painful imbalances. You know, too much chocolate cake or too many nights uh, lying awake with spring to a new romance, you know, all of that uh, has its effect on the body and the mind and it does wear us down. So the uh, sickness and the uh, uh, instability that comes from the pursuit of pleasure is often worse than the pleasure. And so we're trapped. We're trapped in this cycle. And, you know, we need a new pleasure to get rid of the pain uh, as a consequence of yesterday's pleasure. You know, so how will you deal with your hangover? Probably a coffee from some designer cafe. Not that these things are bad in of themselves. It's the cycle of chasing gratification through them that keeps us bound. Now we find the same thing with money. So karma, the desire for pleasure, is uh, limited. Then we do the same thing with artha, the desire for social prestige or money. And uh, we know that no amount of money is enough money. We can build the savings account as much as we want. Uh, and then we know, realize we're a slave to it. You know, so uh, a friend of mine moved to uh, New York and started at a hedge fund. You know, the first thing he told me was that there was a psychologist in-house. 
And I'm like, brother, that's a kind of a concerning sign, no? <laughs> that the uh, Bridgewater, the company that he was working for, had to have an in-house psychologist to deal with the uh, despair that many of their workers felt working 26 hours a day, eight hours, uh, eight days a week, you know. So <laughs> I was like, bro, get out while you can. There's a psychologist there. That's like coming to a horror movie and seeing that the cinema hired a priest, you know. <laughs> You're like, maybe I shouldn't watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> or like or like a, you're about to get on the roller coaster and there's an ambulance there <laughs> i don't think you'd get on the damn roller coaster you know <laughs> so it's like that i told him watch out there's that psychologist anyway he started working and he made an exorbitant amount of money you know he made an exorbitant amount of money now the irony though was that he didn't have any time to enjoy it so the money that he made, he was very happy about it, but he he couldn't really go out and have a good time. The most he could do was like do kamikaze shots at the local strip club because he had to out of a work obligation, you know? So even when he was at these social places like sushi restaurants or whatever, he was there with his like bro squad who only wanted to talk about crunching numbers. You know, that was the, the sad thing about it was that he wasn't able to enjoy life because he was always at work and work extended to even the kamikaze shots in the bar, you know. So he found that he, having accumulated a lot of toys, he found that one, he didn't have the time to enjoy them. And not just that, he didn't have the health to enjoy them. So even the vacation that he eventually, you know, uh, got for us, he couldn't enjoy because um, he was sick. He was sick during that time. He was so tired, so worn out. Um by all of it. And and not just that, the ultimate trap of it was that he was expected to maintain a kind of lifestyle to be in that world. So he wasn't going to make the connections he needed for career advancement unless he stayed up all night doing kamikaze shots, you know, um, unless he drove a certain car to the bar, unless he was wearing a certain kind of suit. So the money that he made, he had to spend on things that he didn't even want to spend on. I mean, he wanted to collect rare books, you know. He wanted a uh, um, Muktananda's play on consciousness, first cop, first edition. You know, he wanted that stuff, but he had to buy other stuff instead. So the pursuit of wealth created a trap for him. He had to maintain a certain lifestyle uh, that he couldn't opt out of, you know. And now it gets even more complicated when you have children in private school. Because <laughs> once your kids get used to a certain level of, of life, you, you, you really feel trapped. You know that they're going to hate you if you take them out of private school and say, sorry, kid, you're going to public school now. Oh, and about those daily Starbucks runs, I think we're going to have to make some coffee at home. You know, that's going to drive a rift between you and your family, let alone partner. So money is a trap too. So we find trapped by Artha. Finally, and this is the, this is the subtlest, even Dharma traps us. Even the pursuit of what we call our purpose, our life's purpose, even that is ultimately quite stifling. You see, what's ironic about the Bhagavad Gita is that Krishna is asking Arjuna in a way to abandon his Dharma. You know, so if you'll notice, Arjuna is a warrior, you know, he's a Kachatriya, and there's a certain code that he has to live by. And that code is not just that he has to fight wars in the name of good, it's a code that says, thou shalt not kill thy teachers. Thou shalt not wage war against thy family. Thou art not to commit fratricide. You know, you see, Arjuna's dilemma was that he couldn't follow Dharma. To follow Dharma was to break Dharma. He, he was trapped by this um, inescapable... Uh, demand that life had placed upon him. You see. 
every rock star will tell you the dream does end at some point. It does become confusing. You know, I, I'll never forget that interview of Kurt Cobain. Uh, no, sorry, Kurt Hammett. You know, the, the guitar player from Metallica. And before he went on stage, he was saying to the camera, all right, time to put on the uh, Superman cape and go play for the kids. And there was in his face such despair, you know. And we, all, we often say, being Kirk Hammond is great when you're 20. Be careful what you wish for, though, because one day you'll be 40. <laughs> so even your dream, you know, even the thing you want to do, whether it's to be um, a great poet or a great musician or a great doctor, even that is limited. Because at some point you'll realize that you're not quite making the impact that you want to have or it's not quite doing it for you the way it did hundreds of, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> um, years ago, you know, it's not quite doing it. Um, and that's Arjuna's dilemma at Kurukshetra. Arjuna feels like the only way to do his dharma is to break his dharma. And that's exactly what Krishna asks him to do. To do what his... His dharma tells him not to do in the name of his dharma. How confusing. And remember how last week we talked a little bit about Yudhishthira? Krishna asks Yudhishthira to lie. Isn't that crazy? I mean, for those of you who know the Bhagavad Gita, you'll realize how crazy it is to ask the embodiment of dharma, literally the son of dharma, to do the most adharmic thing, to tell a lie. Yudhishthira is the paragon of virtue and uh, uh, honesty. He's the eldest of the Pandu brothers. He's the ultimate hero, the leader of, of the Pandavas. And uh, he's being asked by Krishna to lie. Like God incarnate is telling the most dutiful man to break his, his honor, to break his code. You know, of course, he kind of gets around it. You know, he, the lie that Yudhishthira has to tell is he has to go to Drona, a great warrior, and say to him, your son is dead. And that's going to break Drona's heart, which will, of course, allow them to overpower Drona. Quite sneaky, right, Krishna? What a scoundrel. Break his heart and then end him. That's like, like the Green Goblin from that Spider-Man movie, you know, advising Harry to break Peter's heart. You know, like, it's a green goblin thing to say, not a god thing to say, but God does say it in the Bhagavad Gita. So, of course, there's the, there's a workaround. Um, Bhima goes and kills an elephant named Ashwetaman. So, technically, uh, uh, Yudhishthira tells a white lie. Ashwetaman is dead. He means the elephant. But, of course, he's conveying to Drona a sense of my son died. So, okay, so you'll notice, even in this story, Dharma is limited. There will be a time in your life where even Dharma will feel like a prison. You see, Pooja, um, Yudhishthira is a deontologist. He is not a utilitarian. Uh, and in fact, uh, us Indians, are, are, are utilitarianism is, is not really in our code. Our code, it's like the samurai code, or the warrior code, you know? It's uh, do your duty even if God stands in your way. I mean, that's the ultimate form of deontology. So this might be a nice Google search, deontology or Kantianism or something. The idea that even if it's for the greater good, you shouldn't sacrifice your values. And of course, you see, Yudhishthira doesn't know that it's for the greater good. And you know, it's actually not. I mean, notice how much despair and desolation came from that war. You know, that war basically started the Kali Yuga. Um, and in, in a grand scheme of things, it's for the greater good. But at least with regards to the characters in the story, it was a tremendous t tragedy. Nobody won Kurukshetra. You know, nobody won that war. Uh, everybody, everybody's hearts were broken by it. And in fact, Gandhari comes up to Krishna and curses him. The Bhagavad Gita war ends with Krishna being cursed. 
you know, for bringing this upon everybody. It's quite a... Yeah, and if you've seen any Bollywood dramas, like, a lot of them are, are these... Not Bollywood, more Hollywood than Bollywood, but a lot of them are melodramas like this. <laughs> mm. Anyway, suffice to say, sooner or later, you realize that karma, pleasure, artha, wealth, and even dharma are traps. Sooner or later, you look around your life and you feel hemmed in by it. Especially if you collect a lot of toys. It will be a crypt for you, you know? It's funny, I was watching that Adam Sandler movie, Funny People. Many people say Adam Sandler's first serious movie is Uncut Gems. But no, I think it's Funny People. It's from 2009, where Adam Sandler plays a successful comedian with cancer. Oh, not cancer, some blood disease. And uh, Seth Rogen plays a protege. And Jonah Hill is in it. And and uh, Audrey Plaza, and basically all the comedians, Aziz Ansari, they're all in it. And um, and uh, Seth Rogen's character is named Ira, and uh, Adam's character says to Ira, I hate it, Ira. I hate all of it. And he's saying this seated in his, like, you know, palace, <laughs> which I thought captured it so perfectly. At a certain point, you will look at all your wealth and feel trapped by it. You will feel trapped by your life, and it is a life that you created for yourself. So ultimately, you come to be trapped by yourself. And many of us feel this now. We're trapped by our politics, you know? We feel so trapped by our notions of oppressors and injustice, and we feel so beladen by all these thought constructs we have about our body, about our world. None of it we have justified or proven to ourselves. All of it we've acquired from media, from, um, you know, from, from conditioning. So here's the dilemma. We feel ourselves to be in a prison. And if you haven't yet felt this, then all your spirituality will only be co-opted to strengthen the bars of the prison. You know, that's the irony. So as, as Ram Das jokes, the problem with wanting powers is getting them. <laughs> which I think is a beautiful way to say uh, uh, what the Yoga Sutra said in the third chapter, which is Siddhis are the worst thing that can happen to you on your journey. Because once you suddenly develop tremendous concentration power, what are you going to use it for? You're probably going to build a multi-billion dollar business. You're probably going to use it to seduce ideal mates, you know? You're going to use all your newfound health and beauty um, in, 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 in just an innocent way of aggrandizing oneself. I mean, who could expect better of us? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. <laughs> and it's not us. It's our biology. It's, it's a, quite a dilemma to be in. Now, look at what happened with science. You know, a powerful tool by Western occultists, a tool for radical, um, independent self-inquiry. And now it's fallen into the hands of biological motives. So what do we use science for except for survival and reproduction and the tremendous cost that has, not just on the environment, but also on our, our souls, you know? Um, and that's why they had to tear down the Towers of Babylon. It wasn't that learning was bad. It was that learning in the hands of the dragon is dangerous. Thou seest what Azazel has done. <laughs> he has gone down and taught people magic. <laughs> it's not that God didn't want to teach magic. God was just afraid to teach um, those people magic because look at what Azazel did. He breeded giants. <laughs> So you hear this everywhere. Like uh, there's certain knowledge that if you get too early will only be worse off for you. You know, and that's the way it is with spirituality. If you get your kundalini awakening too early without properly understanding the theoretical and insight-based uh, aversion for the world, you're only going to use your spirituality for the world, thus enmeshing yourself further in this cocoon, the cocoon of comfort. Okay, so we've established this. Now we're speaking to you at the level at which you've already realized this. So we're coming to you now at the point at which 
um, you're ready to break out of the cocoon of comfort. When we're ready once and for all to actually do spirituality, more advanced spirituality, which is not the spirituality to improve our Instagram, but the spirituality to be free. Now the question is free of what? What do we mean by freedom? So now the second part of the lecture, let's define freedom. Now, when we ask someone, are you free? They'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm free tonight. But are you really? Or is your freedom really just the freedom to be a slave to your impulses? <laughs> so if we gave someone a week off from work, what would they do? They would be kicked around by their cravings, you know? <laughs> they would be bullied by their conditioning. They would do only that which they've been programmed to do. We learn that we're not so free after all, you know? Are you really free, America? Is the ability to buy a gun really freedom? You know, uh, because once you buy that gun, what are you going to do but shoot your ex-wife for sleeping with your best friend? Is that freedom? The inability to say no to a passion that moves you against your will to commit something you will later regret? This isn't a political point. This is just the point. And remember, uh, Vivekananda would say, I don't talk politics. God and truth are my only politics. All other politics are trash. A, a true spiritual aspirant comes to realize this. Politics are merely mind stuff. Politics are the way that we use to justify our psychology. Uh, someone took toys away from us when we were a child. Now we've projected that uh, onto the government, etc. You know, So we're not here to talk about politics. We're here to talk about the biology that drives all of these things like politics. And the biology says, you have to do this. You have to survive. You have to reproduce. So are we really free if all we're free to do is answer to that age-old tyrant biology? Forgive me for using Western dualistic language here. I just think it's more dramatic than the flirtationship of Shiva Shakti and a little better to drive the point home, um, at least with a bit more pathos. But uh, remember, it's all in good fun, okay? <laughs> Sometimes when you tell people this, though, they don't take it seriously and they continue to go on and indulge. <laughs> so there's some value, I think, to the Western kind of like, dualism, Zoroaster, and Ahriman. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, is it really freedom? Lol, please, use our hubris. <laughs> yeah, so is it really freedom if it's just freedom to be a slave to impulses? So we say the ultimate freedom is actually kind of counterintuitive. The ultimate freedom is the ability to bind your passions, the ability to restrain your lower nature, the ability to not do what your body and mind force you to do day in and day out, the ability to look at biology, smile and say, swipe or no swiping. You will not rob me of this moment of presence. I am here now enjoying silence. You will not fill my silence with incessant world building. You will not draw me out of my silence into building my social media presence. You will not draw me out of my silence to go and hit up some uh, uh, attractive person at the other end of the bar, confusing their beauty for the beauty that I'm actually looking at, my own. You say to your biology, no. I will not respond to lust. I will not respond to greed, even though every fiber of this body and this mind tells me to do so. What could be more badass than that? Okay, I think there's one, one thing that's more badass than that. Looking at the person crucifying you and saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. That's perhaps the most badass thing there is in the world of spirituality. <laughs> the ultimate freedom, you know, is to look your bully in the eye and smile. I don't hate you. I'm not angry with you. Um, you're hurt. And you don't realize that what you're doing is out of pain. And I love you for it. Woo. That will do a number on your aggressor. You know, the ultimate way to get back on your foes is to forgive them. Woo. It says all over the Old Testament, forgive your enemies and God will smite them. 
You know, because they will break themselves upon the rocks of their own evil, leaving you untouched. You are an ocean of forgiveness. What are rocks to you? <laughs> so this is why we don't care for politics, because politics is so dualistic. There is an us, there is a them, there are parties. Uh, simply, we love everyone, you know? Give us Mao, give us Hitler, we'll hug them. You know, because what are they but rocks, and what are we but oceans of compassion and forgiveness? Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Say. Now, we have this idea of the Christ saying that, and that's, of course, the ultimate freedom. But that freedom comes, of course, first and foremost from the freedom of biology. The Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, was no longer in the survival game, you know? He was okay with his body being put up on a cross to make a point. He was okay with that um, because he wasn't in for the survival game. And not just that, once in the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas asked him if, you know, oh, Christ, how beautiful you bring harmony amongst men. And, and Christ says, no, Thomas, you fool. <laughs> I bring blood. I bring a sword. I bring a storm. He knew that his message was going to cause great chaos. Not just that, he knew that they would kill him. He knew they would kill him for telling the truth. But he told the truth anyway. Isn't that interesting? In a way, we can only really tell the truth and really live an authentic life when we're finished with the demands of biology. And I don't even mean just on an esoteric level. If you want to do your dreams, if you want to be a jazz trombone player, you might have to tell your parents, sorry, uh, I'm okay sleeping on the floor backstage for the next couple of months while I try to make it in the music industry. You have to convince your parents and friends that you will sacrifice survival and reproduction. I know, Ma, I'm not going to have a shower. What will the girls think? I know. I might not get you grandchildren if I try to be Miles Davis, I know, but I'm doing it anyway. So even to pursue your dream, you must say no to biology. What more for spiritual life? So in India, we've always stressed the ideal of renunciation. Yes, Hrithik, <laughs> lawyer, doctor, engineer, or family disgrace, Maharaj. I always say, don't forget, Maharaj, there's a fourth option, family disgrace. Take it with joy. You know, it's funny. I think Indian parents more than anything will understand the sadhu path. They get it, you know. At the end of the day, they'll be like, God damn it. I didn't get a CEO of Google. I got a damn sadhu again, you know. <laughs> but at least they know, you know. At least Indians have like a cultural sense of what it is to like be a beggar and not be a failure. Because Indian society still has a sense. And, and you know what? It's funny, Hiratik. After a while, your parents will be your disciples. <laughs> they'll be like, God damn it. He's right. I'm a doctor and it's not that good. <laughs> so in a way, it's up to you to, uh, to save your, your family. Um, and as Angela will describe to you beautifully, your entire ancestry depends on you. you know, and that's why they're so ready to help you. Not just the enlightened ones, but the ones who recognize that your task is their task. Your liberation is their liberation. Once you tap into that, your entire ancestry will come and, and you know, rally behind you. As Goethe once said, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Maybe he was talking about ancestor magic. Who knows? Okay, so it seems like the ultimate ideal of India is saying no to biology. The ultimate freedom is the freedom from lust and greed. Because what are we tyrannized by if not these two things? What are the most driving forces in our life if not lust and greed? In many ways, you know? And we dress it up so beautifully in our culture. We put makeup on the damn corpse, you know? <laughs> There's a multi-billion dollar industry here in Hollywood aggrandizing lust as love and greed as ambition as like healthy drive. But what is it underneath the surface but the stinking carcass of bondage? Of course, we're speaking dualistically. It's all a game. It's all love. Um, even that is Shakti appearing to you as a corpse to 
to play. Remember, Ananda Maima, and you can see uh, Kali Shiva is wearing her right now on the t-shirt. Ananda Maima had a husband. You know, she was married. At a young age, she was arranged marriage. She was married. There she is. Peace and blessings be upon her. Great Ma. And uh, she was married, you know. She, she, and she was a ravishing beauty throughout her life. And she was married. And her husband was her disciple. Now, every time her husband would have like a sexual thought or like come on to her, uh, she would turn into a corpse in front of him. You know, she would do a little like thing, like she would turn into a corpse with maggots, kind of like that Buddhist tantric meditation, the graveyard vision, to show him that his lust was folly, that what he was looking for was not this body. He was looking for God that he misidentified as his body. So this is one of Ananda Maima's leelas. Uh, you might even see it on the Wikipedia page, if not in the many stories around her. But she was, she often was very resistant to being a placed on the pedestal of sexual desire. Remember, she was a ravishing beauty. She was one of India's finest, you know? And uh, the moment anybody, especially her husband, even her husband, who was lawfully wedded to her, even when he looked upon her with eyes of lust, she uh, rebuked it with that vision. And that shows you Ananda Maima, which, which literally means the bliss-permeated mother. Ananda Maima. A tantrika, you know, from a very young age, she was spontaneously enlightened and she would spontaneously do tantric mudras and asanas and karanas and very powerful, very powerful teacher. Um, and you can feel her. Simply closing your eyes, you can feel that tremendous hug and uh, bliss of the, of the mother. She would sit and just kind of tilt her head. So bliss permeated. She wouldn't eat any food. Her disciples had to put food in her mouth just to keep her alive. So free she was from her body that she almost dropped it. <laughs> Even Ramana Maharshi, so free he was that the insects ate up his body and he was totally insensate to it. And they had to keep him alive, you know. They had to hold on to him before he floated off. See the meme of Tim in the balloons? You know, Tim didn't care. Like, have you seen that meme? You know what I'm talking about? Like, Tim and the balloons. <laughs> Ramana Maharshi and Ananda Maima were like that. And they're the ideals of Indian sainthood, you know? So you see, Ananda Mai is being like Krishna. Krishna is saying, your social conventions, such as marriage, aren't conducive to spiritual life. Even though it's lawfully right for you as a husband to desire me as a wife, you are my disciple first. And as my disciple, I care more about your liberation than I do about your, like, worldly needs. Uh, husband, and this is kind of cold to say to your beloved, I see you for what you really are, not what you think you are. Can you imagine? Can you imagine looking your loved ones in the eye and saying to them, I love you in a way that you don't even understand yet. I love you so much that I'm going to say no to your deep psychological needs because it's a pretense. I know you for what you are. Crazy. Such a radical love. And of course, the husband was liberated. True love, you know. <laughs> so Ananda Maima was the ultimate wife in that sense. The ultimate tantric teacher for her husband. You know. So... This is important. In Indian spirituality, the ultimate bondage is seen as the bondage of lust and greed. And the ultimate freedom is the freedom not to respond to those imperatives. Not to demonize them. And this is important. Because even that is perpetuating the bondage to them. To be obsessed with them in any way is to be bound by them. So if you indulge them, 
That's perhaps the more common bondage we find here in the West. But in the East, there's another kind of bondage too, which is that sadhu sadism, sadism I call it, the whipping of the body. If you saw um, the Da Vinci Code, you know what I'm talking about. You know, spiritual practitioners sometimes go too far the other end of the extreme, where they go, ah, the, the tyranny of the body, of, of, of lust, ah, I hate me, I hate the body, you know, how I hate women, ah, I feel so, so you know, like, I hate money, you know, like there's like a kind of extremism that we do with this too. So even that, as the Buddha pointed out, is just as bad as indulging. Because in either case, you're obsessed with it. The ultimate freedom is indifference. You know, it's not, I hate it. It's not even, I love it. It's, eh, uh, I've seen, I've seen better. And I remember Shiva in the various stories about Shiva, which I can't wait for that workshop on India's Independence Day when we'll just tell stories about Shiva. I hope Angela will come because our favorite thing to do is stay up all night and cry about Shiva. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Angela, I noticed today, like, uh, I sent you that video of pouring water on my Shiva Lingam, and then you sent me that video of the pouring water on the Shiva Lingam back, which is so funny, because it's kind of like, when you swap photos, you know, it's like, the photos that we swap, Angela, are Shiva Lingams, these phallic photos, it's like, I don't want a dick pic, I want to see your phallic rock on your altar. <laughs> Snapchat, but for Shiva lingams only. <laughs> yeah, Angela and I have a big crush on Shiva. <laughs> yeah, so what a stud. Now remember, in that story of Shiva, when he pisses off Daksha, you know, the great Vedic patriarch, he doesn't piss off Daksha because he hates Daksha. In fact, I think Daksha would have preferred it if Shiva hated him. Um, remember that Fall Out Boy song, I don't care what you think about as long as it's about me? Right? It's, I think Daksha would have been happy if Shiva hated him. Hate is a form of love too. It's a form of fixation and obsession. But that's not why Shiva pissed off Daksha. Yes, Bhairava. I mean, what a, what a, what a rock star, right? Somebody to bring home to your parents to scare them. Bhairava. <laughs> Naked, smeared in ash, hanging out in cremation grounds, up all night on a new moon, perhaps smoking hash. <laughs> that's a trope of some of the sadhus in the Ganga. Anyway, so, it's, it's, it's a fallen state. Don't idealize that. <laughs> it's failed sadhus. <laughs> anyway, so, um, uh, not to judge. No love lost. No love lost. We have to be harsh with our own family. Who else can we be harsh with? <laughs> so I say this to my sadhu friends with love. Okay, so um, now, uh, Shiva, in one story, pisses off Daksha, the Vedic patriarch. Why? It's not because he hates him. It's because he's indifferent to him. When Daksha walks into the hall, he expects all the gods to stand up and applaud and blow the fanfare. And be like, Here's Daksha, what a, what a stud, you know, what a, what a performer of the yagna, what an upstanding citizen. And Shiva, who happens to be there, is meditating. You know, he's so absorbed in his own bliss, so self-sufficient, so fulfilled in his own state that he's not really sensitive to the social game. He doesn't see, you know, he's called Bolanath. It's one of the names that we give Shiva, which means the innocent one. So Bolanath means Shiva is so gullible. I mean, he's so innocent because he just doesn't get it. He's not on that level, you know? Um, and, and, and some of this innocence actually leads to very interesting homoerotic stories where he can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman. He doesn't see duality. He can't tell the difference between an Asura and a Deva. He grants boons to both without discrimination. He's not on duality at all. Um, and as a result, he becomes quite susceptible, you know, like when he gives Ravana his wife. And his wife is not angry at Shiva because she knows Shiva is that way. 
She's angry at Ravana for taking advantage of it. <laughs> it shows you that if you are innocent like Shiva, Kali will protect you. Don't worry. No one will take advantage of you. Uh, but you must really be innocent like Shiva. Don't just feign it. Anyway, so Shiva is so innocent. He's just sitting there. He doesn't know why he should stand up. He's just meditating. Daksha, recognizing his indifference, is hurt, is, is pissed off. So it's like that. The tyrant of biology doesn't mind if you hate it, as long as you're still thinking about it, as long as you're still acting because of it, uh, whether through love or hate, whether through uh, indulgence or radical aversion. So that's not what we're saying here. Freedom is deeper than that. Freedom is the indifference to the world. It's not a hatred to the world. Freedom is like this. When you realize you're in a dream, do you hate your dream? Do you start to like seethe at the mouth because it's a dream? No, you just wake up and smile, you know. <laughs> like that we say, be free of the world, be free of lust and greed. It's but a dream. Um, nothing to be worked up over. All right, so um, when we say freedom in the South Asian culture, we say moksha, we mean moksha from the body, from the mind, and from all the dictates therein, um, because such a thing is conducive to what we call um, ananda, perhaps, which is what Paul, St. Paul, calls the peace that passeth all understanding. And it's, it's not an emotion, mind you. It's not like a certain kind of happiness. There's happiness, there's joy, there's pleasure, there's fun, there's excitement. Um, it, it's not on the spectrum of emotion because all your emotions are in the mind. And we're talking about a level far deeper than the mind. We're talking about a dimension of being that doesn't even matter uh, what's going on in the mind. It's there. When we say moksha, we're saying connecting to a dimension of your being that is so much more authentic that regardless of what's going on on the level of mind and body, you are blissful. That is to say, your mind could be dealing with tremendous grief. It's only natural and correct that you should grieve the loss of your loved ones. You know, it would be kind of inhumane to teach a philosophy that took away your tears. Tears are sweet. As Gandalf says, ah, two Star Wars Lord of the Rings references. Gandalf says, I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are evil. You know, at the end of, of Return of the King, he says that to the hobbits. They're crying because Frodo is leaving, you know. Frodo's fucking off to Valhalla or whatever. And they're like, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> so, um... It's not about taking tears away. It's not about removing grief. Uh, don't misunderstand. It's not about that. It's, it's not even about taking pain away. That's part of the body. It's about discovering a dimension in your life that is so much more real than the mind and body. Yes, the land of the undying, Amanda. I'm so happy that many of you were born in the 90s. You know, thank God. Because then how can I make all these killing uh, Rage Against the Machine references? You know, we thought yoga in the park, and I don't know if John is here, but John Christian... No, he's not here. But John came to the park yesterday for our in-person yoga. Um, that's where I met Shiva, Kali Shiva over here. And uh, John came to the park and uh, we were talking a little bit about a dog. Who I, It's a dog park. So I said the dog looks like the lead singer for Rage Against the Machine. And John goes, digging in the name of. <laughs> it's just so great to be able to make all these 90s references. Okay. Yes. Hazel, what is your son's name? Ah, oh, beautiful. That's actually a kind of common Indian name too. <laughs> Rohan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dogs always do what they told you. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll stop here, okay? We're, we're going to go down a rabbit hole of smashing pumpkins in a little bit. 
So we break coconut. Okay, so um, <laughs> so you see, um, this dimension of being is not really about what's going on the level of the body and the mind. There will be pain, there will be grief, but there will still be this dimension that makes it all beautiful anyway. It's kind of like a lucid dream. You take the dream less seriously because you're awake in it. You recognize it to be a dream. But not just that, you're able to enjoy it a little more fully because you're in the dream. In other words, your sadness becomes that much more meaningful. It no longer becomes something that you need to thwart or get rid of. It becomes something beautiful and enlivening. As we say, it's your mortality and grief that sets your life up against the backdrop of eternity. Kabir Helminski's words. Or as uh, um, Rabindranath Tagore says beautifully, uh, the Taj Mahal is a teardrop upon the face of eternity. You know, it's like, it's all these sadnesses. Remember the Taj Mahal was so poignant. It's a tomb. You know, it's an act of love for a departed one. It's all this makes the life in the world beautiful, uh, but it's only beautiful when you have Ananda. Without Ananda, yeah, Mumtaz, exactly. Without Ananda, uh, you take it all too seriously and it becomes a tragedy. You know, you forget that you are um, an actor playing a role and you identify so heavily with the role that the role causes you actual suffering. So when you discover this Ananda, this freedom, it's not actually freedom on the level of the body and the mind. Your body is still bound to old age, sickness, and death. Your mind is still bound to duality because believe it or not, that's the nature of the mind. So this is the subtlety of what we are teaching. We are not teaching immortality on the level of the body and nor are we even teaching, dare I say it, peace on the level of the mind. It won't happen. The mind is just, it's, you know, it's, it's that's its game. It's, it's, it can't be any other thing. I mean, that's what it was made to be, you know? Uh, the game is about discovering what you are beyond all of that, so those things don't bother you anymore. It's very subtle. As they say, Alan Watts beautifully says, uh, enlightenment is the last uh, disappointment of the ego, something like that. Because <laughs> you're expecting it to be in the mind, you're expecting it to be in the body, but it's not. Okay, one thing I will say though, is that it does change the mind and the body. So don't make the mistake here, we say, who wants a grumpy gyani? You know, we make this joke, uh, you're not so enlightened if it doesn't reflect on the level of the body and mind somewhat, you know. So the enlightened being must walk the walk. You must see that your teachers are free of lust. You must hang out with them and see that they aren't hitting on people in their sangha, you know, because that is a clear sign that they're not finished with lust. And then they might have the gall to say to you, oh, it's just the level of the body and mind. I'm enlightened. I call bull on that. You know, <laughs> demand of your teacher's lustlessness and greedlessness, you know, um, because only such a thing is a reflection of enlightenment. Nothing short of that. Um, so you'll see on the, on the level of the mind, there will be a kind of calm. In other words, you won't believe all your thoughts anymore. You won't actually believe that your thoughts are an accurate depiction of reality. You'll start to see that it simply is a matrix, a projection of words. As Fabricio so eloquently types out for us in the non-duality chat in the Discord, um, it's all just words. It's all just a linguistics. It's just a way of packaging, parsing, and framing reality into uh, something other. And essentially, that's why we are so disdainful of politics, because what are we doing but just creating these realities, spinning them into existence? Of course, not something you want to say to the unawakened, because they will call us ignorant. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Who do we? What do we know? Anyway, so you'll see, um, the mind spins all these realities. When you're enlightened, you simply don't believe in them anymore. You don't believe that these thoughts 
actually say anything about you or the world any more than you think the smell of garbage makes you a bad person or the smell of lavender makes you a good person. You see, uh, you defang your thoughts as indicators of reality. Not just that, you relate to pain um, not as suffering. So you experience pain as simply a sensation uh, and you're chill with it. And Westifer isn't here, but he tells a beautiful story of his operation. So Westifer, I know he likes, he doesn't mind if I share this story, but he often uh, talks about when he was uh, under anesthetics and they, the anesthetics didn't work and he had tremendous pain in his surgery and he had two choices. Either he continued to suffer or given that he wasn't going anywhere, you know, he was kind of in sleep paralysis, he was numb. Given that he wasn't going anywhere, his only other option was to relax into it. The way of Kali, the way of the cross. So with Westifer, he stopped saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, father, father, why hast thou forsaken me? He stopped saying that. He just relaxed. And you know, Westifer claims very beautifully, he's a Buddhist, <laughs> tantric Buddhist though, like Kaz. But he says very beautifully, he says, not only did all of that pain turn into bliss, like tremendous ecstasy, but he also saw Kali. You know, he had like an actual legit vision of a woman walking into the room, sitting down on a chair, smiling at him. You know, like Kali appeared to him once he opened up to pain. As Ramakrishna Paramahansa, peace and blessings be upon him, said, Kali only appears black to you because you're looking at her from far away. Like when you look at water from far away, it's black. But when you come close, it's colorless. Similarly, your God with form is formless. Kali is, uh, in fact, Beyond all the gunas. She is beautiful, radiant, you know. Mother Shyama. Golden even, her complexion, if you knew her. But if you don't know her, she'll be black to you. Like the Bengali Kali, you know. If you don't know her, she'll be suffering. Once you know suffering for what it is, it's just sensation. It's just ecstasy. It's just more bliss. It's more energy, you know. Uh, it's just another, <laughs> another way of kissing. If, if we can use the tantric term. It's another way of making out. It's another page in the Kama Sutra of Shiva and Shakti. Now, I say this jokingly because I know all of you know that the Kama Sutra has nothing to do with Tantra. We had a whole lecture about how Tantra has nothing to do with sex, except as an allegory. So that's why I say this with some tongue-in-cheekness. In case there are some newcomers who... I don't want you to conflate, okay? Kama Sutra is not Tantra. <laughs> but yeah, so, you see... Um, all this talk of pain, all this talk of grief, that's only for one who believes in the body and mind. One who's finished with that, it's not the case that you'll stop feeling pain or grief. It's just that those things will no longer be what they were. They will be what they have always been, what they actually are, which is the rope, not the snake. And the rope is existence, pure knowing, and pure bliss. All right. No sense in talking about the rope. One must experience it directly. So it's enough to say that what you perceive now as a snake is in actuality something very real. So unlike the Buddhist in South Asian Hindu philosophy, um, even that's not the correct word, but uh, in, in, uh, at least in, in what we're talking about today, we do affirm something real, something true, something beautiful, and that's you, the self. Okay, so that's what we mean by freedom. When you discover yourself to be that one beyond the body and the mind, uh, it changes your relationship to the body and the mind. And therefore, um, yes, Pooja, that's a great question. And that will be the first thing that we'll address at the end of the lecture. So yes, definitely, definitely. So um, 
once you realize that you are a dimension beyond the body and the mind, uh, it changes your relationship to the body and the mind. And that's liberation. Because the next time you feel lust, you won't necessarily need to act on it because you will be established in that place beyond the body. Now, that isn't to say that you won't consummate a sexual relationship. Maybe you will feel like it's in the in your dharma to do so, but please don't deceive yourself here. Um, if you're doing it, make sure it's not out of lust. You know, so if you are consummating a physical relationship as an enlightened being, um, you won't feel it to be a craving. It won't be this kind of, I'm seeking completion in another, you know, because you're already in a state much better than anything you could achieve through that interaction. So it becomes a sharing rather than a transaction. So it's no longer, you have something that I need to make me feel good. Let's get to it, babe. Uh, oh, dinner first? Fine. Let's go to a fancy restaurant. None of that will happen anymore. It's just, I am so blissed out, you know. And I'm content to simply sit here um, and smile at you. Uh, that's enough, you know, um, that's enough. In fact, this is way more fulfilling. But uh, should this occur, uh, sure, but it's incidental, it's incidental, you know. And in a way, I, it does seem like these, these activities do fall away to some degree, you know, they do fall away. I mean, will you really build your NGO in the dream having realized it's a dream? I don't know. You do with your enlightenment what you will. Of course, there are different ways of expressing it. Uh, but for now, let's just define freedom not as uh, the freedom of the body and the mind because such a thing is not possible. Those things are in time and space. Those things are bound by karma. It is the freedom to no longer identify with the one to whom those karmas apply. In other words, ultimate freedom is disbelieving in the body and mind um, and discovering a dimension outside of time, outside of space, outside of causality. That's the only true freedom, and that's what we call moksha. And of course, we experience this to degrees. It's an ever-deepening freedom. Okay, now the next thing to say here is, you get the same idea in Christian mysticism in the writings of Saint Anselm. So I think the best discourse on freedom is probably in Saint Anselm's The Fall of the Devil. It's one of three texts that appear in his uh, magnum opus, called Three Dialogues. <laughs> I wonder how many dialogues I'm going to get in this. <laughs> but anyway, in Three Dialogues, the third one is called uh, On the Fall of the Devil. I think the second one is called, the uh, first one I think is called On Free Will. So it's, it's a Christian discussion of free will. Um, and in, in, in that, he distinguishes between spontaneous will and natural will. He says a rock rolls down a hill through natural will. Whereas a human chooses to pray through spontaneous will. So the question of free will is being discussed. And the dilemma is, did, the, did Satan choose to fall? I mean, if God created the devil to be the kind of person who would fall, then isn't God to blame? Or if God created the devil to be free, why would the devil out of his free will choose to fall? You know, what's going on there? So it's a very deep discussion about free will. And it turns out, according to Saint Anselm, that the ultimate freedom is the freedom to bind yourself. <laughs> it's a paradox, right? The ultimate freedom is submission to God. Uh, the ultimate freedom is uh, surrendering your will to the will of the divine. That is, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, thou who art in heaven, I can of my own self do nothing. All my works my father does through me. That's the ultimate freedom. Now, we're going to tease out why that's so free. Why is it so beautiful? Um, now, in St. Anselm's text, he says something to the effect of this. If you want to be free, decide what you don't want, and then decide once and for all you won't do it. And in those moments when you want to do it, don't let yourself do it. 
So you give your freedom is to deny yourself your freedom in a way. Your freedom is to deny your impulses. You see, in the West, we consider freedom the freedom to pursue impulses. But according to Saint Anselm and according to South Asian philosophy, true freedom is saying no, which is a complete inversion of our ideas of freedom, you see. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The freedom to submit, Irvin. Exactly. So we're going to expound just in the final few moments of our lecture, in the last 30 minutes, we're going to expound on that a little more. It's a subtle idea, and it is as follows. Now, it appears in Kant too, by the way. Now, Kant says... Uh, and then this is kind of confusing with Kant. He says, anybody who does anything wrong is not doing it out of his free will. What? How can you try people in court then? And the answer is you can't, right? Let he who has not cast the, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And don't forget Kant, he should have been canonized, you know. Um, it's a, it's a grand mistake to think of Kant as a secular European philosopher. Kant was probably the last scholastic. His work pulls directly from Saint Anselm. And if you don't believe me, read three dialogues and then read Critique of Pure Reason. It's, it's basically a rehash of Saint Anselm, you know. Uh, you can't read Kant without reading the scholastics, Catholic scholastics. So anyway, like Saint Anselm, Kant says, when a person harms another being, it's because they are slaves to impulse. What Kant, like the Christians before him, called passions. So Kant says, there are these things called passions. Spinoza, the great non-dualist in, in Amsterdam, uh, Dutch non-dualist, also called them passions, by the way. So the passions are like, I think there are eight of them in the Christian school, like uh, impurity or, or lust. Uh, there's vainglory. There's uh, gluttony. There's like a bunch of them, eight, according to the desert fathers of the Philokalia. So anyway, uh, the passions are animal motives body and mind motives, motives of survival and reproduction. They seem to override our rationality, our reason. Uh, that's why we have these phrases, crimes of passion, right? These phrases, crimes of passion. You didn't mean to kill your husband. It just so happened that he was in bed with another man and it made you so mad, made you so mad that you stabbed him six times, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, Vasanas, interestingly, are a Sankhyan idea. You know, a, a yogic idea. You know, we don't actually, Advaita doesn't like, doesn't really buy into reincarnation. Uh, only on the level of Maya is reincarnation real. Remember, Advaita Vedanta renounces all of that as illusion anyway. So it doesn't really talk about like samskara that much, you know, as we will see shortly. Okay, so um, Kant says that when you do something wrong, that is when you harm someone else, it's because you weren't in control. You were overwhelmed by passion. You were drunk with uh, biology and therefore you acted out. Now, can you try someone for this? Probably not. I mean, if you were to follow Kantian logic to its extreme, no one is responsible for any crimes. What? Can you if, you, if you bought that, wouldn't that change the way you feel about criminals? Wouldn't that change the entire justice system from a punitive one to a restorative and rehabilitative one? You know, when we realize our criminals aren't evil or, or bad, they're just sick or hurt or worst of all, worst of all, bound, bound by a habit, bound by an impulse. This is, I think, speaking to last week's lecture about how there's no such thing as evil or ill will. In fact, another Kantian idea, spray them with compassion, yes. <laughs> a Kantian idea, there is no such thing as the will to evil. Evil is just when you get overrided by passions. No one can freely choose evil because no one would choose evil for its own sake. Evil seems to result from following your biological desires for dom dominion or whatever. Okay, so Kant and Selm, South Asian philosophies, they all seem to circumambulate around this one point. 
The ultimate freedom is the freedom what Kant calls the reason, or what we might call the buddhi, the freedom to discriminate for oneself that these things harm me. That if I follow my passions, I'm only going to get more and more ensnared in samsara, in this prison house of the flesh. So instead, um, rather than hate the flesh, rather than love the flesh, instead, I'm going to simply gently close the mouth of the lion. So what we're asking of you is the eight in the major arcana of the tarot. Don't kill your lion. Don't, like, be violent. Gently close her mouth. You see how the woman closes the mouth of the lion in the tarot? Like that. Um, and this is not a matter of dropping your cigarettes here and now. It's a matter of going to your mat. So we don't propose negative practices like, okay, just fast. Just do it. Just fast all day. Angela and I are fasting nicely because it's Monday. Uh, but that's a consequence. Fasting is not a practice. It's a byproduct, as Angela will testify. It's like you pray, 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 and you're so full um, of prayer that you just tend to fast. Or rather, um, you are so satisfied with the bliss of yoga that Molly falls away. You see, so the kind of renunciation we're talking about is showing up on your mat day in, day out, and practicing. Practice above all. And sooner or later, all these biological things will give you up. Slowly. Uh, and it's all very gentle. That's the ultimate freedom. But you see, the freedom starts with intention. So together, we must intend now to live our lives by the highest ideals possible, which is we must decide together to live a life aligned to the highest sense of virtue, which is to say no to the very natural, very innocent biological motives that keep us trapped as pawns in a game that we cannot win. So we must decide that we are spiritual aspirants. You see, a big part of this is a matter of saying to yourself, who do you think you are? Are you a, are you a sadhu? Are you a yogi? Or, are, you know, are you a slave to your passions? And once you decide that you will not be that anymore, that's the beginning of your liberation. You know, so hopefully today you can bind yourself in some way. Say to yourself, I will practice every day, no matter what, even when I feel sleepy, even when I feel sick and that I feel like I should go to bed, even when I feel like it would be better for my business to work on Instagram tonight, whatever comes up, say to yourself now, once and for all that you will practice and not just that, go further and say you will practice at a fixed time every single day, no matter what. If you happen to be in, air in an airport, go into the bathroom and practice. You know, uh, nothing should be able to take you from your mat, not even enlightenment. <laughs> you know, so show up every day, bind yourself to that. Um, and that will be a sign of your freedom. And yes, you will fall from it. Uh, and again, it's all in good fun, but at least have the ideal. So as the Buddha said, Samyak Sankalpa uh, is, is perhaps the, you know, he, it was his eighth spoked wheel, of course, nothing comes first, but I think intention comes first. I remember the Buddha did sit under the tree and he said, I will sit and I will find the solution to suffering tonight. And I won't get up from my seat. And so you see, the Buddha's awakening began with intention. So the ultimate freedom that hopefully we can have together now is intend to live by our ideals. So what are your ideals and why not adjust them to the highest and work every day to live up to them? Now, of course, be very careful. When you fall from your ideal, there should not be any guilt any remorse. It's not your fault. You know, there's literally 13.7 billion years of memory conditioning you to fall from your ideal. <laughs> Please don't forget that. Uh, your foe, uh, to use the dualistic language, is an ancient one. Your lover is the supreme coquette. She has had 13.7 billion years to practice her art of, uh, of Maya, you know, and it's a great game. But, um, 
she's good. You know, damn, she's good. So please forgive her when she does win the game of hide and seek every now and then. <laughs> so when you fall from your ideal, don't be rough on yourself. Simply smile and continue going. Like Sri Aurobindo said, uh, the entire spiritual life is falling from the ideal, getting up, looking sheepishly at God and continuing the path. <laughs> okay, so let's close. Our final um, 20 minutes will devote to just three arguments that hopefully can liberate us once and for all from the illusion of the uh, body and mind. One more point to make, though, is that when you look at the history of Indian philosophy, it's been a move towards freedom. So this is an idea that appears in Swami Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga, one of, I think, his best books next to the Karma Yoga and Bhakti Yoga book. Um, and in that book, he makes this beautiful point. He says, if you look at the political history in the West, it's been a movement from the rule of many to the rule of, sorry, the rule of a few, to the rule of one, to the rule of many. So do you see, this is the movement of Western political um, thought. It used to be tribal chiefs and various like warlords. Then they were all united under a king. Do you see how a king is preferable to warlords? A king is always preferable to the rule of a few. We prefer Caesar to the senators. Now, even better than that, because the, the one can be a tyrant, even better than the king is democracy the rule of the people, the rule of everyone, equality. That's the Western political movement towards freedom, political freedom. Now in the East, we had the same movement in religion. So you, if you look at the Vedas, we started off with rule of a few. There were like a few gods. We started with polytheism, you know, like maybe a kind of animism where various forces of nature were deified. Very quickly, we gave that up. So it's a mistake to think Indians are polytheistic. We are most empathetically not. We have a vast pantheon because we recognize that the one God can appear different ways to different people depending on what their personal disposition is. So if you're more of a mother, then the one God will appear to you as baby Gopala or baby Ganesh. Um, if you're more of a friend, it might appear to you as Krishna. If you're more of like a lover, it might be like Radha or Krishna or like whatever, but it's still the one God. So it's not like all of these are different beings, mind you. There are various aspects or shinings, which is literally what the word Deva means, shinings of the one light, the one God. So remember, Indians very quickly, uh, by, by the time of the Puranas, they had finished with polytheism. They were like, ugh. This is so primitive. Uh, please don't forget that we did that. In our history of thought, we finished with it. And so those of you starting the bhakti path, it's very important that the ishta devata you choose is for you the monist god, meaning is for you your monotheistic version of god. You know, because we, we say it's very dangerous to have a polytheistic kind of approach uh, because you're missing the the higher principle, which is the rule of the one. See, the rule of the, uh, the, the few is always less free than the rule of the one. The rule of the one is preferable to the rule of the many. So that's why we use words like king, you see. The same way the West had its kings, in Indian religion, we also had the kings. And Hazel, what you are relating to is not many beings, you're relating to many aspects of the one being to which all those permutations point. So your relationship is to God, singular, but these various deities at different times of your life appear to you as that same God in different ways. Now, please uh, remember that in Judaism, the same is true. There is no one God, by the way. The one, I'm sorry, there is one God. I mean, that's the hallmark of Judaism. There is one God, but it, it's not, it's not a one dimensional God. So, I know Angela's like, <laughs> through a knife. I'm like, <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All of Angela's ancestors just kicked me in the butt right now. <laughs> Angela is one of the originals, the OG, you know. <laughs> Angela's from the Levant. She's here to keep me honest. Okay, so um, it, monotheism is the hallmark of the Abrahamic faiths, but it would be a mistake to think that the one God of Judaism was one-dimensional. All throughout the Old Testament, this God has various names, like Shaddai Elkai, which is used very intentionally, or Adonai Haaretz, Eheye, El. Um, each of these names convey a certain function. You know, so... Uh, they have meanings, you know, like Adonai means like Adonai Haaretz, dominion over the earth, king of the earth. And you'll often see that used in relation to um, creation, firmament building stuff, like binding uh, demons, like that kind of thing. You'll see Shaddai Elkai used to support upper realms. So Shaddai Elkai often means the strong living one, which protects upper regions from collapsing down. It's all very intentional. But one might even get the impression that there are at least... 10 faces to the Judaic God. And we call this the Kabbalah. And in the Kabbalah, we say the Tree of Life or the Sefer Yetzirah. But no, Tree of Life is a little anachronistic. That appears in the 10th century in France when a bunch of um, Hebrew mystics, the Merkaba mystics, moved to province in the south of France and mixed in with the Gnostic Cathars. It's a bit anachronistic. Before the Tree of Life in the Sefer Bahir, in the Sefer Yetzirah, you get the idea of Sephiroth. And there are at least 10 each of those 10 have another 10, you know, so there are perhaps at least 100, uh, but often we say there are 400 because there are four distinct worlds, Atsilotic, Briatic, Yetziratic, and Asiatic. Now, I'm just blitzing through this. You know, well, we will do a lecture on Kabbalah one of these days, not today, um, maybe on Thursday. It's very technical, um, and Monday is a little more broad. So just know that in the Judaic monotheistic flavor, there are at least 10 faces of God, at least. And each of them corresponds to a different aspect of that same deity by various different names that deity is called, you know. So similarly, the one God gets many faces in Hinduism and those faces during the time of Tantra in 6th century AD become artistic iconography, you know. It's not idol worship because it's not the idea that the God is actually in the stone. The Shiva Lingam is a powerful metaphor for a principle of Shiva Shakti, you know. Okay, so anyway, um, now the one God is obviously better than a few gods. But you know what's better than that according to Advaita Vedanta? Um, the rule of the many. So once you decide that there is one God, and once you decide that that one God is the creator of creation, stands apart from creation, the next step is to try to figure out how this transcendental deity is imminent in creation. So this is the move of Christianity, and this is the move of Advaita Vedanta. So the Christ, Jesus the Christ, is um, the imminence of the transcendence divinity, transcendent divinity. And Paul, St. Paul, wrote letters to people with the following phrase, ye sons of God. You know, he would say S after the N. Isn't that crazy? I don't think many uh, Christians recognize how radical Galatians is. If one were to but read Galatians, you might like kind of get frightened a little bit because it seems like blasphemy. You know, because he is saying everyone is the Christ. The Christ, meaning anointed one, is a state. It's an I am presence that everyone can find within themselves. He also famously was the one who coined the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is within, you see. So according to Paul, you are all sons of God. According to Jesus, the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, you are all sons and daughters of God. He says in John 12, 14, these and even greater works shall you do. Now the understanding therein is that what allows the Christ 
to do these works is that he and his father are one. You know, that's, that's the authority upon which he does his work. So he doesn't, Christ doesn't do anything. Uh, one of his um, defenses to the Pharisees on Saturday was, I'm not really working, bro. They're like, hey, dude, it's Saturday. It's the Shabbat. The fuck are you doing healing people? This is a violation. And he's like, I come not to break the law. I come to uphold it, even though I'm not going to um, stone people, even though I'm going to work on Saturday. And they're like, no, dude, you can't work on Saturday. And then he goes, but I'm not working. You see, what a genius. But the, the reason what the Christ did was, was special was because he was standing as God in the world, you know. And in John 12, 14, he's saying, you too can do those works and perhaps even greater works, which is a rather confusing claim. But you too are sons of God. Now you get a very beautiful move in religion. The move from many gods, polytheism and idol worship, um, to a more mature idea, which is a monotheism, a one God, a ruling principle, to an even deeper idea, which is that one God expressed as the many. You know, there's a great prayer in the uh, um, Christian mystical literature, and it goes like this. Um, Yeheshua, Yehovasha, for thine is the flame and its flashing, for thine is the water and its ebb and flow, for thine is the wind with its movement, for thine is the earth with its enduring stability. All things art within thee, as thou art verily within all things. Amen. You know, it's a non-dualistic claim. The claim is that God is all the things around you. It's the substance. The very nature of the world is God. There's no God outside of the world. Um, God is the world. Um, and it's appearing to you now as these people in the Zoom room. You know? And what should you do when you meet God? I mean, like, if you go to Whole Foods and, and you're checking out and you realize that the person who is uh, checking you out of Whole Foods is God, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know? Um, and that's the invitation of Advaita Vedanta. How are you going to treat each other when you realize it's God that you're meeting? You know, so this is perhaps the most mature form of religion, which is the imminent deity as the many. So you see, in Indian spirituality, uh, as early as 3800 BC, perhaps maybe 2000 something by more conservative estimates, we made this claim. Better than the rule of many gods is the rule of one god. But even better than that is the imminent god as a substance, as a principle, as an absolute. And we said, common to all things is existence. Everything exists, so the principle of existence is therefore the absolute principle in the universe, and that's God. Not just that, everything that exists, exists in awareness. So it has the nature consciousness. I cannot show anything to exist outside of my consciousness. Therefore, its being is rooted in my knowing. So knowing is God. And lastly, once I discover this, oh, what bliss. Not the... Not the the happiness that you know we normally feel, but the peace that passeth all understanding. So now we have a name for God, not as a being, but as a principle, you know, as an absolute. And that name is Sat Chit Ananda, existence uh, as a as a principle, knowledge as a principle, and bliss as a principle, which you hear in Christian mystical writings too, like God is wisdom, Sophia, which is that uh, Hebrew a form of God, the feminine form of, of, of Yahweh, uh, Sophia, meaning wisdom, or you or light. Or, you know, our, our is the Hebrew word for light. Sophia, later the Greeks turned it to mean wisdom, you know, so philosophy. But then you, you hear it in Margareta Poretta, one of perhaps Christianity's finest mystics, and French mystic, and she wrote, God is love, you see. 
So all the mystics of the world are saying this. God is pure knowledge, pure knowing. God is pure existence. Um, and God is uh, pure love, pure bliss. So God is existence, knowledge, bliss. And God is the only thing there is. You see, that's the most startling claim. So in closing, here are three arguments to prove that. And not just this, you know, if God is the only thing there is, who are you? Now, this is eerie, you know, because if you start to really love God, if you start to pray every day and really cultivate a strong feeling in your heart for this principle, you will not only see it in all things, but you'll see it in all people. No, and, and then you'll go a little deeper. You'll start to see it in your own body. And then you'll start to see it in your own mind. And suddenly you realize there's no room left for you. Where will you take a stand? Everything is God. Everything belongs to God. You as a worshiper of God are not even your own body, not even your own mind. You know, so where will you stand? Only God is. And God is so great that there isn't any space for you left. <laughs> and when you realize this, you dissolve into a non-dual awareness, which is all of this is just God. And you are that. Your true nature is that. Uh, and not you, the ego. Not you, the personality. That's in the mind. Ugh, it's, it's a dream. It's, it's, a, it's a purple color when you mix blue and red together. It's not even really there. Personhood is the ultimate illusion. And the first to go when you have a, thou canst not live uh, and see the face of God, you know? Because <laughs> once you see what this is really about, you, you know that there's no personality in any of it. So anyway, um, uh, all of this to say, you are that divinity. And that's the ultimate claim of Indian spirituality, which is, Tattvamasi, that thou art. God is an absolute principle. God is existence, knowing, and bliss. And that's your very nature. And once you discover that, that's your freedom. So moksha is realizing this to every fiber of your being. And three arguments to kind of prompt that realization is as follows. The first is my favorite, the waker, the dreamer, and the deep sleep argument. Um, it will take you quite deep if you contemplate it a lot. And the argument is as follows. When you are dreaming, you really believe the dream is real. You know, so notwithstanding lucid dreaming, um, if you are dreaming sincerely, as most people do dream, uh, you really in that moment, accept as your reality, the dream reality. So you really feel like you're this person or several people, uh, you're running from this tiger, uh, various things are happening, and, and perhaps it's a nightmare. Now, when you wake up in the morning, the dream disappears and you discount it. This is important. You discount it as unreal. You say that the reality of the dream was not absolute. It's not absolute in comparison to the reality of waking. So waking up has given you context for the dream. You realize two things. One, you were never in the dream. The dream was in you. Two, everybody you saw in the dream was just you appearing back to you. Do you notice this? There are no people in your dream outside of your own head. You made them up. Uh, and, and you are everyone in the dream. That's why when people come to me, and you know, it's funny, uh, teaching yoga in America, they expect you to wear a big turban with a jewel in it. And they're like, can you explain my dreams to me? You know, do you have a mantra which I can use to maybe have a boner longer? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes, sir. Come here, I'll wrap a grass around you. You know, like they're looking for that kind of shamanic thing. And I'm like, what do your dreams mean? They mean nothing. Wake up. You know, what does this dream mean? It means you should wake the fuck up. It doesn't mean anything, bro. Everybody in your dream was you. Um, it's a dream, you know, and that's the Advaitic perspective, of course. Sorry. I know mystics like dreams very much, uh, but Advaitists are a little bit uh, harsher, sterner. <laughs> so, uh, we, you know, we say often, 
it's a dream. Everybody in the dream was you. And all of the scenarios that occurred in the dream uh, were fictitious with regards to waking, even though they might point to things in waking life. So waking life is often sometimes determined by dream and dream is often determined by the stuff that happens in waking life. So you might even be able to collapse the two as Gaudapada does indeed do that in Mandukya Karika. He says in both waking and dreaming, um, there's a kind of effect where your memories are dreamlike and all of it's kind of confusing. But while you're awake, you take that to be real. And while you dream, you forget about the waking and you take dream to be real. When you're awake, you forget about the dream and you take waking to be real. You seem to be shifting between these two states and you can't decide which one is more real. Because when you're in one, you think that's real. When you're in the other, you think this is real. So which is real? Is waking more real? Is dreaming more real? What, what, what will it be? such? Is this real or is that real? And Ashtavakra says, Nay, tum hi such. Ne wo such, ne ye such. Neither that is real, nor is this real. Dream and waking are both unreal. You are the reality of both those things. And by you, we're talking about the you that was there in deep sleep. So notice in your shushupti state, in your deep sleep state, there was no waker, nor was there a dreamer, but there certainly was somebody, right? Because if there was no one there in deep sleep, how is it that you can say to me in the morning, I slept dreamlessly. I slept deeply. You know, the very fact that you can make that statement with confidence indicates that somebody was there. It wasn't Nish. It wasn't dream Nish. It was perhaps a witness, perhaps an even deeper sense of me, you know. And when you realize this, you realize you were not the dream none of its contents, nor were you waking, nor of any of its contents, nor were you even the absence of content in deep sleep. You were the one to whom that content was appearing. You are the screen upon which the movie is being played. And not just that, the movie depends on you entirely uh, for its existence. So if it wasn't for your conscious participation, there would be no waking, dreaming, or deep sleep. And that means you aren't in the world. The world is in you. You are not in the dream anymore. The dream is in you. Nor are you in this waking life any more than the waking life is in you. So where are your oppressors now? Tell me. You know, are they out there? No, there is no out there. It's all, it's all here in your own awareness. I don't mean your head as an individual. You know, I'm not talking about the jiva or the person. I'm talking about the awareness in which that jiva vibrates. And you might say to me, well, come on, Nish. I see you over there and I'm over here. You know, I feel that we're different in space. You're there. Therefore, we're different. But isn't the concept there also in you? You know, isn't all of this ultimately in you? What can you experience that's not in you? Can you jump out of yourself? Are there really things happening out there in the world outside of you? Yes, outside of Nish, surely. Nish is certainly not the be-all, end-all of creation. That's called solipsism and certainly not what we're saying. It's far subtler. We're saying that even Nish and all of his melodrama is within me. And so when I say I, I only relatively mean Nish, only as a matter of convention. Christ is not talking about his body. If he was, and by the way, the guy had flawless grammar, right? I mean, he was quite a well-spoken and articulate gentleman. You think he would accidentally fudge his, 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 uh, his uh, what do you call it, um, tenses when the Pharisees ask him, who are you to be teaching this stuff? You're only 30. And he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. 
You think he just forgot grammar in that moment? He just forgot past, present, future tense? No, he very intentionally said, I am, eheye. He didn't say, um, before Abraham was, I was. That would be hubris. That would be Jesus saying, I'm so special. Uh, this guy was here forever. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm so done with this body from Nazareth. I'm so done with this mind. Remember, you know, when he went home, he couldn't do any miracles <laughs> because nobody saw him for what he was the pure presence beyond the cousin, the brother, the friend, the son. Uh, so of course he couldn't work his miracles because nobody could see Jesus for what he was. You know, <laughs> it's only when he left his home that he became a prophet. So when he says to the Pharisees, Elvis, <laughs> yes, he's Elvis. Love Elvis, don't like the fan club, as one uh, Christian said so beautifully in defense of the excesses uh, of the uh, Catholic Church in the recent years. <laughs> He says, it's possible to love God without loving the institutions that parade around in the name of God. Even the Christ said, beware the brood of vipers. You know, they say, Lord, Lord, yet they know me not. My name is but ash in the mouth of those who would use me for their own ends. Anyway, now, uh, notice that the Christ is not talking about Jesus. You know, he's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the anointed one. The Buddha is not a guy. The Buddha is, a, is, is, is something else. It's a state. It's, it's an anointed one kind of state, you know. So the, the Christ, he's talking about I am, pure I am presence. When he says I, I and my father are one, he's talking about that pure presence. That witness who is outside of waking, dreaming and deep sleep, and yet is still the reality of all three. Now, once you know this, don't you think there will be a tremendous sense of ease in your life. Like once you realize everything that troubled you in waking will go away when you dream and everything that troubled you in dream will go away when you're in deep sleep. Everything is in this state of flux. Why be attached? Why hold on to this um, flux known as the body? In, in today's opening meditation, did you not feel how the flux of the body was just the changing sensation? Start to feel your body from the inside out. In other words, surrender your concept of what this body is. Um, just start to feel it for what it is right now. And you'll start to notice it's just sensation, sensation coming and going. Uh, and, and when all the sensation goes away, you'll be around. Don't worry. You've survived sensations disappearing before. Why not later? So once you feel this, you're no longer so afraid of death because that's a waking world thing. You know, uh, your subtle body carries on in dream. Nor are you even really that afraid of the dissolution of the subtle body because you're there in deep sleep too, in the absence of all bodies. And you know you can come in and out of these bodies at will. You know, see also the bodhisattvas of Shantideva. You know, so you, you know that there's this kind of like flux in the world and you are somehow not a part of it, although you are the very substance of it. You are the cause of it. Your very witnessing gives it life. Doesn't this sound rather familiar? One who stands outside of creation, yet is at the same time imminent in creation, who is the cause of creation. Is this not a definition for God? <laughs> so you see, the ultimate analysis of Advaita Vedanta is find God in your, yourself. Um, the kingdom of heaven is indeed within. And when you search within, you will realize you are not who you thought you were. Hence, the Christ says, deny thyself. When the Christ says, deny thyself, he's echoing perhaps what the Upanishadic sages said with neti neti. Not this, not that. You will come to realize what you are by negating away from what you are not. You see, you are not weakness. You are not 
um, oppressed. You are not suffering. You are not beladen. You are not mortal. You know, these are but half-remembered dreams. Awaken to what you are, the source of all strength, the source of all beauty. Let all thoughts of weakness vanish gently, easefully, like the veils of morning dew before the harsh, pure, noble rays of the dawn of wisdom. You know, that's what we would say. Strength, strength above all. You know, do not entertain even one thought of weakness. If you so much as think yourself weak, think yourself a sinner, think yourself a decrepit thing in the world of, of, of tyrants, immediately do this kind of practice and go to your mat and meet yourself and realize you're not that. You're God pretending to be um, um, not God. <laughs> and the beauty of Christ is that he's the most ordinary there is. You know, um, he's the most you that you are. Christ is better at being you than you are at being you. Uh, and hence, one must follow his example to learn to live like that. Um, so MJ asks the question, why do we incarnate if the goal is to renounce incarnation? So, you know, the reason you can't ask how old is God is because God is outside of time. So it's a logical impossibility to say how, how old is God. Because God is not confound to time. You can't even say where is God because God is outside of space. Nor can you say who caused God, because God is outside of causation, you see. Uh, I'm, and we're going somewhere with this. So it's an illogical error to ask these questions of God. They show a misunderstanding of God. God is the principle outside of time, space, causation. Your, not your awareness, awareness, which is what you are, is outside time, space, and causation. Because without awareness, you wouldn't have those three things. So that is to say, what's the cause of awareness? It's outside of causation. What's the purpose of awareness? It's outside of causation. There's no purpose. You know, you might ask, what's the purpose of a dream? The purpose is to wake up. <laughs> you can ask a million questions about the dream. Where did the tiger come from? Where did the lion come from? Will I, uh, will I survive the tiger attack? It's all a dream anyway. So to talk about purposes, reasons, the meaning for existence, all of that is dream talk. You know, the meaning of the dream is in realizing it's a dream. So is there a purpose to the dream? No, it's just a dream. Is there a purpose to incarnation? Not if you don't think incarnation never happened. You see, so this is the ultimate and perhaps eerie claim of Advaita Vedanta. None of this is going on. <laughs> you think it is. It's a projection, but none of this is happening. And so we don't really explain it. Because to explain it is to lose ourselves in the discussion of the dream when much better is to discuss the waking, metaphysically speaking. You see, that's why the Buddhist and the non-dualist did not answer too many speculative questions because uh, they knew that it wasn't conducive to what we were actually talking about. Um, and so that's the kind of trick of it, MJ. Can you see the kind of like, the, it really confounds the intellect. Now, rest assured, there are other flavors of Indian philosophy that will play the game. So for instance, Kashmiri Shaivism says art. The purpose of incarnation is art. And the best way to enjoy the movie is to stop identifying with Jamie Lee Curtis running away from the serial killer. So if you go to a movie and you actually think you are Jamie Lee Curtis, you're not going to enjoy the movie because you think you're going to get hacked to bits. It's a horror film most of the time. <laughs> actually, no. If you realize what this movie is, you'll notice it's a National Geographic special on animal behavior. 
<laughs> when you look around at the at the world, you'll see it's just uh it's just the zoo. <laughs> Animal farm, right? So anyway, you're watching this nature show and you actually think you're the gazelle and you actually think there are lions, but then someone whispers in the ear, "It's a movie." You have two choices now. One, you walk out of the cinema. That's what Advaita wants you to do. Like and, and actually not really. Advaita just says Okay, it's a movie, so like, relax, you know, look at the people around you who are also watching the movie. Make conversation with them. It's chill. It's all chill. What's the purpose of the movie? I don't know. It's just a movie, you know. I don't really need to talk about Tom and Jerry. It's just happening on the screen, you know. I, I'm, I'm not, I know it's, but Kashmiri Shaivism gives a nice answer. It says, the purpose of the movie is to have fun is art, is to enjoy yourself. And the only way you can enjoy yourself is by recognizing that it's a movie. Hence, the purpose of incarnation is to recognize that you are not bound. The goal of a human life is freedom. Freedom to do what? Freedom to um, enjoy it for what it is. Have fun, relax, you know? Uh, and you can't do that if lust and greed are kicking you around in this matrix of fear and craving, yes. So you can think of this as a 70s self-help philosophy too. The best sex you're going to have is when you're done with lust. <laughs> You'll be richer beyond compare when you're finished growing the savings account. <laughs> so yes, that's one way to think of it. Advaitins and Buddhists though are just like, eh. You know, it's just, it come, it's coming and going, it's changing. Even to call it art... You know, even to call it art, it's like, really, I think I could do better. Like, if I needed to create something, I think I could create something a little, you know. And I have. It's the rope. The snake is but an illusion. It's not as good as the rope. Uh, the rope is eternal beatitude, if you will. Okay, so I think that argument is sufficient to show that you need not be beholden to the things of the waking world. In a few uh, minutes, if not hours, some of you will stay for a while, uh, you will go to sleep, depending on where you are in the world. Not Zeti, unless they're siesta. But depending on where you are in the world, you will go to sleep, and all of this will disappear. Isn't that comforting? Whatever problems you have now, if you go to sleep tonight, and if you can't sleep, it's going away, you know, you don't have to worry about the IRS. There'll be other things, there'll be like dream stuff. You're going into a whole new life. Isn't that exciting? And not just that, you might go into annihilation. Not only will you go into a dream life in which you forget all of this, you're also possibly going to go into a null life in which nothing is there um, and it refreshes you. You love it, you're excited for it, you know, you want to sleep deeply. How strange. You're af we're afraid of death and yet here we are craving deep sleep. <laughs> Shows you a little something about death, huh? Okay, so given all of this, given all of the arguments we've presented thus far, can you taste that to which all these words are pointing? These words are all nonsense. You can forget all of them the moment we end the Zoom meeting. Can you taste the vibration behind the teaching? The, uh, <laughs> Claire. <laughs> Claire dropped him. He's like, what? <laughs> Just kept the Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> yes, can you taste... This, this, um, this intoxicating, heady freedom, this almost scoundrel-like arrogance that you might have with regards to the body, the mind, and its various problems, if you knew that it was but a passing phenomena. What if, just for a moment, you played with that idea? What if you played with the idea that personality is a mirage? If one were to spin red and blue threads, this is from Liam Thomas Christopher, if you spin the red and blue threads on a spool, you might see purple. Why continue to live and die for the sake of purple? 
It's not there. Why not see red and blue and realize that the personality is but an illusory, emergent property from elements dancing, from an interplay of uh, various forces. And underneath all of that is you. Awareness, you know, pure awareness. And so in closing, I thought to read you um, a translation from the, uh, one of the translations of the Nirvana Shatakam which is a, a poem from Shankaracharya, a great non-dualist, and it encapsulates the highest form of freedom. Uh, this poem might be eerie to some people if you kind of like still want pleasure in the body, and that's okay. If you're on that trip, be on that trip. Um, but if you can feel into the vibration of, of what it is that we're kind of hinting at, um, maybe you will feel it in this poem too. It's called the Nirvana Shatakam. Uh, it, it stanzas on liberation, on freedom, on moksha, and it describes what a person feels when they are liberated. So when I read the poem off to you, um, I'll only read the, the, the tag in Sanskrit. So the tag is, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham. Uh, so every verse ends with this tag, Chidananda Rupa Shivoham Shivoham, which means, I am of the nature, consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. You see, the identity of one with God. I am awareness. I am the absolute. Um, and as we read the poem, if you can sincerely say the things that these poems are saying uh, with every fiber of your being, if you really believe it, uh, that is the indication of your enlightenment. And remember, enlightenment is not something you get. It's what you already are. It's merely seizing the pretense that you are anything but this. Yeah, so here we go. We're going to read the Nirvana Shatakam. Um, and uh, this translation is from Meditative Mind. I would read you the uh, Swami Nikilananda one, but it's in the other room. So I'm going to read you this one. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm probably going to do some translations f loose, loose freehand as well. So here we go. Um, Nirvana Shatakam. I am not the mind, nor buddhi, intellect, nor ahamkara, ego, nor the reflections of inner self. I am not the five senses. I am beyond that. I am not the ether, nor the earth nor the fire, nor the wind, translated from Mahabhutta, the great elements. I am indeed of the nature, consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham. Shivoham. Neither can I be termed as prana, nor the five types of breath, vayu, nor the seven material essences or datu, nor the five coverings, panchakoshas, Neither am I the five instruments of elimination, uh, karmendriyas, nor even uh, am I the five instruments of knowing. I am indeed of the nature, consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham Shivoham. I have no hatred, nor have I dislike. I have no affiliation, nor liking. I have no greed, nor have I delusion nor pride, nor haughtiness, nor envy or jealousy. I have no duty, dharma. I have no money. I have no desire, kama. 
nor karma, nor even liberation. I don't even desire liberation. I am indeed of the nature, consciousness, and bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham. Shivoham. I do not have fear of death, Abhinivesha. As I do not have death, I have no separation from my true self, no doubt about my existence, nor have I discrimination based on birth, meaning caste consciousness. I have no father nor mother, nor did I have a birth. I am not your relative. I am not your friend. I am not your guru, nor am I your disciple. I am indeed that eternal knowing and bliss of the nature, consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I am all pervasive, for I am outside of space. I am without any attributes, for I am the one in which attributes appear. I am without any form. I have neither attachment to the world nor attachment to liberation. I have no wishes for anything because I am everything, everywhere, every time, and always in equilibrium. I am indeed that of the nature, consciousness, and bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham Shivoham. Om, may you recognize this truth now and forever. May you be beyond all duality. May you recognize all this as an emanation of the one truth that you are, existence, consciousness, bliss. In the name of that which is most sacred, may we remember now and always the highest ideals and live by them. Aum, Bargo devasya dimahi, diyo yona prachodayahata. Om, radiant source of life, illumine each and every one of my thoughts with the most sacred that I may live my life in remembrance. Om, loka samasta sukino bhavantu. Om, radiant source of life, may all be happy here. May all be free from suffering and from the causes of suffering. And may all beings be liberated. Om, shanti, shanti, shanti. Om, peace, peace, peace.